Hi, welcome to Tortal Recall. This is the podcast where we reread the Tortal books or the Tamer Pierce books and yell about them. I'm Abby, my pronouns are she, her. Let's go around and introduce ourselves. I'm Aurora, I use she, her pronouns. I'm Grace, I use she, her pronouns. I'm Gus, I use they, them pronouns. Okay, I'm super excited about this podcast, you guys. First episode. So excited. Yeah. First adventure. First adventure. <laughs> First adventure. So we have a lot of segments to go through with our um, with the book here, and the first one is actually called First Adventure, uh, which is our background with this specific book. Anyone have any exciting stories about how they first encountered this book? Well, I actually, it was very odd. This is the last Tamora Pierce, I, I read a bunch of Tamora Pierce books set in the same universe um, before I read this one. And so... Wait, set in the Tortal universe or the Emily universe? Set in universe? the Tortal universe. So, I had some perspective on our main character from the outside, so it was very, very weird for me as a youth to start reading this book. Yeah, no, same. I, I believe I read the Kel books first, so I, um, yeah, had some understanding of who Alana was before I read the Alana books. Yeah, I also read Kel first. Going backwards to Alana, I feel like, has influenced my opinion on the book every time I've read it. I mean, it's interesting because she's she's so iconic, you know? Right. Especially, like, in the later books, she's such a, a major figure, and then here she is as a 10-year-old. You know, kind of seeing her backwards kind of shaped my view of her as a character when I started reading it for the first time. Like, I had all of these, like, ideas already floating around about, like, what she was and that kind of elevated her to, like, a higher status, um, which I'm not sure if this book managed to, like, I don't know. I was, I was a youth. I wasn't able to, like, separate the two, but hopefully we'll do better this time. <laughs> I did um, read this book first. This was the first book I read in this series. Uh, or, you know, in any of the Tortal books, anything. Well, yeah, so you have a... I mean, I, I feel like that's much more, like, the intended way. I mean, it, I don't know if it's yeah. really an intended way, but it's know. sort of the more logical way to approach it. I think you can read it either way. Um, but Alana is, like, super iconic, you know? She's, like... Yeah. Her role in um, the Kel series and, you know, other series is very different than, you know, this... 10-year-old kid you're introduced to in this, in, in this book. I don't know if we really have that much more to say about our backgrounds here. I, um, I've, I've reread other books, other Tortal books a lot. I've only reread this one once or twice. I did listen to it as an audiobook a couple years ago, but there's still a lot of stuff that I didn't remember about it. Like, I, I feel like I, it's a lot less sort of close to me than the Kel books and stuff, so I learned a lot during this reread. I agree. I had like a very vague like frame memory of what happens and then I was kind of surprised to actually read and be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, these are the events that took place. I remembered some of them as being much more spread out throughout the books. This is like a really packed book. It is. Mm -hmm. Wait, Gus, did you have something to say? Uh, I mean, I was just going to say that like this was like one of the books that like or one of the, the pieces of media that like actually introduced me to like the concept of gender nonconformity. So it's really weird to look back at it with like a very different view on that than like, you know, being a 13 year old kid. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, I kind of think this, I'm not sure if this is a broader thing or a thing that's specific to you, but you referred to the concept of a girl dressing up as a boy as a Lana-ing I do. in conversation. <laughs> I'm not sure how broad that is. My friends do it, but that's because we're friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but right, it's fun. And that's, it's just like such an iconic example of that, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't know if that's just within our sort of small community. It's good shorthand. Yeah. I think it's really fun too, when books that are like these that are for pretty, pretty young children, right? Like mm-hmm. Alana's 10. So you can read this book when you're pretty young, use these like really big tropes. But then if you're a kid, you haven't read the inspiration to the tropes. Mm-hmm. So for you, this is the icon. Like it becomes the icon because you don't have the... Yeah, this was definitely an introduction to a lot of things for me. Or the the world in general was. Yeah. A lot of fantasy tropes. Anyway, we should probably move on to the next segment at this point, which is first test, where we describe the base, basic plot of the book and our sort of first impressions. Does anyone want to like do a plot summary quickly? I could do it. This by itself is a test. Like, there's a lot. This is a wild book, you guys. <laughs> it is a test. Well, it's weird because it's not a very... I mean, we should mention that um, the Alana books were Tamara Pierce's first books, and they were originally written as a single novel before being divided up into four. So I think that uh, has a lot to do with how this book is structured as not really a book it has like three climaxes sort of yeah like it's very hard to summarize because it's paced very oddly i mean you could say you could summarize it as alana goes to school and then fights some demons but you're missing some very important points in there right yeah yeah so alana is a a young noble girl she has a twin her twin wants to study magic and she wants to be a knight so they switch places and she pretends to be a boy and then she beats a bully and then she gets a magic sword (laughs) and then she uh, i switched the order there but then she cures her friend the prince's sickness and then she fights some demons the end Kind of. Kind of. The structure of this book is Alana realized she just faced down death. And then she went back to class and uh, she (laughs) hung out with her friends. Yeah. And I mean, this is also partially because it covers three or four full years. Her entire time is a page from when she's 10 to when she's 13. Which I didn't realize until much later in the book when she's reading the letter from her brother. And it's Mm -hmm. like, they hadn't talked for three years. And I was like, I thought we'd been here for like three months. Like, I just hadn't realized. Yeah, it's very And I'm pretty sure that realization has hit me every time I've read this book. Um, (laughs) So either I'm not doing very good close reading or the time is not really marked. Pretty sure it's the latter. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone else have any just general impressions, I guess? This is such a school book. It's such a, so charmingly a school book. It is, yeah. By having, like, bullies, and then you have that really classic, like, um, when they talk about, they explain to you all of the curriculum, which always happens in, like, boarding school books. (laughs) Yeah, it is really funny that, I mean, it it makes sense because she's a little kid, but... You know, the sort of later conflicts in the books are she fights these ancient powerful demons and she, um, you know, right, beats this uh, this magic evil disease that's going to kill the prince. But then the first major conflict is just there's a bully who's bullying her. So she gets good at fighting until she can get rid of the bully. Like one of my favorite plot lines reading this as a kid was actually the thing with the sword. Like she has that sword she has a sword fight 
at one point in the book when she's just learning how to use a sword and she does really badly. Um, and so then she goes and she like steals her, um, Coram is her man servant slash friend slash guardian. Her dad. He's her dad. <laughs> he's not her her dad, literally her dad. but Jovial he's... uncle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, she takes his really big sword and, you know, uses it every morning. And I don't know. I just love that, that bit of grit and how she perseveres. And I was, as a child, I was super, super into that. Yeah, no. And, and this is especially great. I mean, minor spoilers for later books, but you know, when you, when you see her from other people's perspectives in later books, it's like, you know, oh, she's one of the best, if not the best, um, sword fighters in the kingdom. And then in this, you see her being bad and working really hard and, you know, having that conversation with Coram where, uh, is so sweet where he's like, he tells her like, oh, I'm a natural with a sword, but you can also like work really hard and learn and become a natural. And it's great. Anyway, let's move on to our next segment, which uh, was titled by our lovely resident pun creator, Amy, and it's called Run the Dominion Jewels, and it's our plot and world-building section. I wanted to talk about the point of view. Yeah, let's do that. Because um, close third person is what we're used to reading, if we're reading third person. That's what Harry Potter is, like, for example. Right, where you're inside a specific character's head even though it's not from first person. Right, you get their their personal thoughts. You can hear their thoughts um, and reactions to things, um, but nobody else's, and you only like learn about events that they learn about. Mm-hmm. The author will break that, maybe, but it's done in very specific ways. This like usually sticks to that, but sometimes we hear John's thoughts. Sometimes, like we like go off and follow like all of Alana's friends, and they like have a conversation about how. Yeah, I think that happened like one. It happened time. one time. <laughs> like these aren't these aren't things that are like built in with like structure. They're not like here's a separate chapter where we, you know, we're just gonna follow John now or anything. It's just like no, we're just kind of gonna follow John now. Here's some thoughts from this other person. Yeah, the thing that that really interested me about it was that it was not like um, you switched from scene to scene between following different characters. It was just mostly Alana, but occasionally there would be a few paragraphs where it thought that you really needed to know what someone else was thinking, so it would just jump to them quickly. Or like, in one scene, a single line where you just learn the stable hand, her friend the stable hand, like what he thinks about what's going on. And yeah. It's funny to me because this stood out so much rereading this book. Like, to me, I was like, there are no rules. Why mm-hmm. is this? Why would you, as an author, make this choice? But it didn't stand out to me at all when I was reading it as a kid. And I wonder right. if it partially is reading that it, like, suits a juvenile reader because you want to know what everybody's thinking. You want to be nosy. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing. I mean, partially it is her first book, and so I think her style might change later. But also I do think that it works better for a young reader because, you know, it doesn't just sort of give you context clues and expect you to guess about what other Mm -hmm. characters are thinking. If it's important what they're thinking, it just tells you. Yeah, and also, I mean, the reason that it seems weird to us now is just, it's only because we are so used to a different way of telling stories. That's Mm -hmm. true. I mean, I also think that it's a little bit strange, partially just because it seems so, um, as we said, sort of unstructured, where it's, uh, you know, there's, I think, literally one scene in the book that doesn't have Alana in it. (laughs) There are two. There's one where her friends go off and talk about her. 
And there's one where John goes and talks to... Oh, yeah, John talks to Sir Gareth. Oh, that's true. Talks to Gary the Elder or whatever. I don't even remember who. Well, they don't call him Gary the Elder (laughs) yet, but yeah. Shh. (laughs) But also, like, no one has covert... No one's, like, scheming except Roger, and all we know about him is he's just, like, ambiguously evil. (laughs) But it's really interesting that you have this shifting POV, and often, like, the insight that you get from that is just, like... You know, Alan seems like a pretty cool guy. Yeah. It's all stuff that's just like, here's some good emotions from another person. It's never like, this is relevant to the plot. It's just... Right. No, it's often very sweet and charming, but it never gives you really important information you didn't know. It's mostly just characters' emotions. I mean, with the exception of, I think, what, Miles has Mm. some insights later about Mm -hmm. Alana. There are a few times where it says, like, Miles watched this really closely, and stuff like that where it sort of gives you some hints that he might have some ideas i mean but even like with the sweating sickness it switches at some point to his point of view because he's talking about seeing like the boys and one is purple and one is blue and then they have voices that aren't the voices of small boys yeah right and then he's like what's going on sorry that's my miles voice (laughs) (laughs) very good great well, maybe this is a good segue into the world-building section of our discussion, because I have so many questions about the magic in this book. <laughs> yeah, the magic and the religion, I just don't... I mean, it's really interesting, and I'm excited to learn more about it, but I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm confused as to how... I don't know. So, the magic. They have a pool inside of themselves of, like, energy power. That they can do stuff with. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that description comes more from the later series. The world building in this book really felt to me like she was figuring it out as she went along. Like, not in a bad way, just that in comparison to the later series where it's a really established world, here she is, you know, coming, figuring out how magic works as it comes up. So it's described in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, when, um, when Alana, uh you know, banishes the sweating sickness or whatever, she doesn't really use her own magic. She uses her magic to call on the gods, which is not a thing that I really think we see in later books. No, and that direct communication with the gods is not at all similar to how we see magic working. And then sometimes they say incantations and sometimes they don't. And yeah, it's, it it seems, sorry to interrupt you, but it seems really emphasized in this book that magic, you know, in later books, they call magic the gift, but in this book, it's really emphasized that magic is a gift from the gods and you're using God's power when you use magic. Whereas later it seems more like an innate thing that you have inside you. But I mean, like, in this, it does, to some extent, like, have rules. Like, they have magic, like, they use a lot of it, like, they're tired, like, it's, like, limited, but as soon as, Mm -hmm. like, the gods become, like, directly involved, all the rules are out the window and nothing matters. But they do, they learn spells, they say rhymes about them, and... They say rhymes! Yeah, which is so cute. They do say rhymes, it's really charming. And also, isn't it great that, like, her, um, her witch mom, um, Mm -hmm. she is, like, not presented as being this super powerful person, but then later in the book you learn that she taught Alana really advanced versions of all these spells, so she must must be a really good witch mom. And that just made me really happy. Yeah, so, well, I I mean, I I thought there was, like, a little bit of ambiguity there. I mean, definitely... Maud. Maud, the, yeah, the healing woman who um, taught them early on and was kind of their mom, uh, that being Alana and Tom. Uh... Like, she, she's definitely, a, like, she, she called on the gods and the fire and stuff. So like she's 
pretty powerful, it seems like, but also I kind of got the impression that um, Roger was sort of deliberately not teaching mm. them as much. And I don't know, that's not explicitly stated, but it definitely seems very possible that um, the stuff that they're learning as pages is very, very basic. So, um, you know, Alana was pretty well trained before that, obviously. But uh, I'm sure that she could learn more if she had a teacher who wasn't invested in being the best magician at the palace. On the topic of mod, I thought it was, and as well as magic and science, I thought it was really great that Alana had a background clearly in just, like, knowing basic healing practices. Like, not magical healing practices, but, like, she was just, like, like, she went into a room full of palace healers and she was like, everything you're doing is completely against logic. This is terrible. Get out. Yeah, like, let's keep the room clean. She tries the the world's non-magical remedies for things as well. She knows those. And I, I really like, I don't know if there's a place to talk about this later, but I really like the idea of Maud telling her, you know, you're clearly you want to be a warrior, but you also really need to heal and learn to heal and use your healing power to offset the fact that you're going to be causing so much death and destruction. It's really beautiful. Maud is really awesome. Yeah. My, like, big world-building question about magic, though, is not even about how it works. It's I'm really curious about the relationship that the people have to magic and how it has this sort of, like, bad connotation. And so we get the sense that a lot of people are gifted that don't reveal it. Like, later on, one of their teachers uses magic and they're, like, had never heard of him having the gift before. And um, I'm just really curious. Like, where is that coming from? Where in their history is the magic is bad coming from and then we have this evil sorcerer so it's enforced in the narrative or i guess at this point ambiguously evil yeah i mean this is part of what i was sort of thinking about how there are so many ways that um you know it it seems like maybe she hasn't quite figured out what she wants to do with magic in a religion because magic in this book it's treated as um you know a, a godly religious thing it's also sometimes treated as an academic thing and then Thirdly, it's treated as, um, you know, right, a sort of witchcraft, semi-evil thing. And it doesn't really seem like all of those could coexist. Like, Coram is really scared of magic, and he makes a, a sign against evil when Alana talks about magic. But if it's a gift from the gods, why would people feel that way about it? Right, and if it's all, like, knit into their religious beliefs and practice, it really does make me wonder. And then, as well, like, a big part of the moral of the magic seems to be power corrupts you know um but then yeah people use it for good at many points and you know the training doesn't really reflect that message i don't know right and there is this sort of idea that i mean alana is scared of her gift and she's scared that it can be used for evil but it's also clearly sort of morally important that she use it you know for good for healing um, so, yeah, I don't know, it, it's tricky, and I think we'll have to, this is something we'll have to keep an eye on going forward to see how this develops in later books. I have another world-building comment, but it's, uh, pretty, it's different. Uh, can we? Yeah, go okay. for it. I think it's really cute and funny that it's, like, fantasy time, fantasy tropes all over the place, um, but also they drink lemonade and they're learning algebra. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty charming, too. And we just get this moment that's like, hey, kids, math can really help you out. You need a trebuchet? (laughs) Algebra. And it's just like this, it's almost like a little PSA. (laughs) That's true. I like it a lot. 
No, just every time that they describe the, you know, the school part of the book, like she's going to classes, she has these priests, like the priests are teaching, and like Miles is like that cool old history teacher, the cool one who makes, you know, bad jokes in class. Um, but that, reading it as a young kid was really what like brought me into the book more than, you know, she has magic or like demons and all that. Right, definitely as a kid I was way less interested in like, wait, there are hundreds of gods that they worship and all that kind of stuff. And, and like, they men- they sort of mentioned an afterlife, but what is it? Like, those are the questions I'm interested in now. But at the time, I was really interested in, like, you know, the mechanics of they go to school for half a day, but then they also learn fighting and horseback riding, and that's cool. <laughs> I remember, like, writing down her class schedule so that I could, like, play it as a game with my friends. <laughs> that was definitely a thing that I was into as a kid. God, I totally did that. <laughs> this is great. What is up with like the like um the old ones? That was my other big world a world building question. I want to know so much about ancient Tortal. Yeah, who are they? What is it? Are, are current Tortalans descended from the old ones or I can't even tell I can like I I when I was first reading the book, I honestly couldn't even tell if they were human. I'm pretty yeah. sure they're human, but I can't tell if they're the same general civilization as modern Tortolans are just an entirely different group of people. And they never come up ever again. <laughs> I want to know so bad, Tamara Pierce, please. <laughs> I feel like they were just thrown in there so she could have this, like, you know, everybody dreams of, like, going to old ruins and finding something really cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm super into the the fantasy idea of you know, this old ancient civilization with more powerful magic and technology than the current civilization. Like, that's so rad. Right? I also really like Miles just being like, I'm really just looking for, like, a fork. So, kitchen stuff. That was great. I just I just like the cookware. You'll probably find some weapons. I don't care about those. <laughs> I love Miles. Yeah, but so, like, I, I was collecting facts about the old ones, and we know that, um... They they sailed across the ocean to build a civilization north of the Inland Sea. So that sounds like they, you know, the same thing that Tortolans did. Uh, so maybe they're they're directly descended, but they're clearly their civilization was destroyed. And they mentioned that the the initial colonizing king of the Tortolans was referred to as the old king. So was he an old one? I don't. Was he I'm, was he one of the Tortolans, or was he a king of the old ones? Not actually clear, necessarily. I mean, they they mention him when describing sort of the current political setup with the mm-hmm. um, the Bazir, so I, I'm not sure. They, I really wish there was more information about this, but... Um, so we also, we also know that they were terrified of aging, and they coated all of their stuff that could, like, disintegrate with some mysterious thing that makes it not age. And uh, the the rumor about them is that the gods saw them as a threat so they destroyed them which is super cool <laughs> and i just want to know everything about right. them and i mean they must have coexisted with the uh i don't know how to pronounce this the, the sandir yeah yeah because they you know there's their this... weapons hurt them exactly and they're like that you come with their weapons presuming that right. they were definitely a presence somewhere back in the Mythology or history. I don't know. I can't call it mythology. The the old ones and the Isandir coexisted. The old ones were destroyed. Then the Bajir showed up, and then the Tortolans showed up. Yeah. Assuming that the Tortolans aren't descended from the, I I think they must be separate groups because 
even though they they similarly sailed across the ocean to colonize this area because there there's such a big knowledge gap between them. While we're kind of adjacent to the subject, the East Sandier, or Yiz, I don't know how yes. to say it. I would like, I'm... I think we, we can go with East Sandier. I don't really know, but that works. I like that. I mean, that's like a very, I don't know, stereotypical way of making people sound evil. Just add an E in front of their name, which is great because <laughs> she does it for all of them. Right. They all, all their names start with Y. More Ys than are technically reasonable. Which, notably, they have names both individually and as a group, but they're also referred to as the nameless ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I thought it was the most, like, I don't know, tropiest of ling tropes is, like, having all of their names start with the same name, and it's, of course, the most evil letter. <laughs> right. Uh, it's too much. Yeah, it, it is the a lot. The most evil letter. But, I mean, we don't know anything about them. They're I mean, They're apparently immortal. They were there before humans, but, like... What are they? Do they have their own language? I mean, we're, this is getting into our linguistics territory, but let's move on to Social Justice Corner, where we talk about social justice. I was like very intrigued by like the feminism in the interactions between women in this book for a book that has very few women. I thought it did a pretty good job. Could have used more women. Yeah, no, I mean, it has, I, I guess it is sort of, like, somewhat necessary to the plot that it has very few female characters other than Alana, but... Seems like a cop-out. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I'm very interested in, like, a dual reading of this book, where, in terms of gender, because you can read it as a book that is being written about a character who's a girl, and then you can also read it as, as like, all of her interactions are with people who believe her, for the most part, to be, like, a young boy, and that's... A very, you can almost, like, in many scenes, you can almost, like, flip in and out, where you're like, um, I feel like interactions would be written differently in context with the context of, like, the feminist praxis going on at the time. Like, the interactions between Alan and his peers would not be written the way they're written. They're, like, they're, they're very tender with him, and I really value that <laughs> in, the, in the reading where we see them as boys. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, partially because we know that they sort of see him as different, and partially she sort of gets around this issue by um, all of Alan's friends are much older than him, and um, he's really tiny, so they sort of see him as, you know, having some, I guess, feminine characteristics, even though they don't know that he's female or at least they see him as being small and like they need to kind of protect him yeah yeah but it's interesting i i mean so uh we have a a section especially for friendship but i feel like i can mention this now which is the the very very sweet moment um when i think it's raul who says like has it ever occurred to you that we like you because you're different and she's just like no absolutely not that's ridiculous (laughs) But it's so sweet. So, like, clearly they are seeing Alan as different. Yeah, and I like that. I like that, like, younger brother sense. But I'm still, I don't know. It it creates, like, such a, it's a really interesting dynamic and really interesting how you can treat it as a reader because there's, like, a lot of layers um, when you're really, like, start (laughs) to look at it. There are. And, right, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the narrative exclusively uses, I think, Alana and she her pronouns for Alana but but does do refers to groups she's in as the boys and stuff like that which is an interesting balance sometimes it says like 
she was the, the best of all the boys. She was the uh-huh. best, yeah. better than all of the other boys. And I think that that's, I don't know. There are points when the narrative jumps into somebody else's head and they think of her as Alan. Right, yeah. Just wanted to bring it up. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, I guess it does um, emphasize that, I guess, when when we're in her head, she thinks of herself as Alana. Mm-hmm. And she she separates herself a lot in a way that clearly the people around her are not doing. Which, it's so sad, you guys, because she has so much imposter syndrome all the time. All the time. And all of her experiences are internalized to this, like, such extreme degree. Um, I just feel really bad for her that she can't talk to more people. Right, I mean, I guess she has quorum throughout, but um, early on she really doesn't feel like she can talk to anyone and she feels like, She's she's just never going to be as good as the boys, and it's really sad. <laughs> like, it, throughout this book, she doesn't really get over that, because, um, I mean, she, she occasionally, I guess, there she does have that breakthrough at the end where, um, you know, she's thinking, uh, well, I can't be Jonathan Squire no matter how good I am at stuff, because I'm a girl, and therefore I'm not as good as the others, which you know, is an, a, a distinction that no one else is seeing at that point. Um, but she does have a breakthrough where she, uh, you know, fights the demons and everything, and then she tells John that he should pick her, which is awesome. And I think that breakthrough comes a lot because she's able to, like, have Jonathan see her as a girl, and, like, that truth for her um, really helps her break through on that. She has that truth, so then she can push through and be like, okay, well, you should pick me anyway. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, it's... Hard. I mean, partially, this is, I guess, sort of down to the idea that she hates lying and hates deceiving people about her identity, but this book really does have an emphasis on the idea that she has to accept herself as a girl to sort of get anywhere, and various characters like Coram and, and Mistress Cooper and George, and I think Jonathan also, all sort of say, like, you can't hide from the fact that you're a girl, you have to... I guess, think of yourself as a girl to be successful, and that's maybe sort of where the breakthrough comes from, which is, you know, I mean, I like, I get the idea that she can be a girl and a warrior, and that's great, but also, um, I don't know, it, it felt sort of upsetting that so many other people were telling her, like, this is your identity, this is the way that you have to... Yeah. Yeah, it was hard to read, and then, like, her relationship with that too like it doesn't seem like she has room to explore the way that she actually feels about being a woman or a man yeah can we like unpack this a bit because we're skipping over a lot of like context yeah that i feel like we should talk about yeah chapter six is called womanhood right off the bat and the first thing that happens in that chapter is that alana gets her period for the first time and has no idea what's happening which is very traumatizing very traumatizing yeah slightly understandable how it happens i kind of wish that maude had pulled her aside before she left and been like really no one's gonna tell you this shit <laughs> apparently because you have no mom yeah, i i mean i feel this is on maude because she's sort of the female presence yeah. who who raised her and obviously no one at the capital was gonna do it right but i mean like maude did not have much time anyways alana has learned nothing about how her own body works yeah i mean it is it is a huge sort of relief when mistress cooper enters this narrative partially just because there's, like, another sort of maternal presence there that was completely lacking f- after the first, you know, chapter or whatever. And it is, you know, I found it just really comforting at, after the, like, she's, you know, she has, she's really 
horrified and you know she she cries when her her breasts are being visible and then she has this really traumatizing experience of waking up and her bed's all bloody and it's just so nice to you know have mistress cooper show up and her house is full of plants and she just says like you're fine that was great it is that very good like oh thank god an adult feeling that i don't know if kids (laughs) also get but like because now i'm concerned about her as a child i felt it very much yeah when i was i mean when i was a kid reading this i do remember feeling like oh thank god there's an adult alana has someone she can talk to rereading it now like i could not focus on that at all just because of like how much mistress cooper was just like saying that like like you have to accept you're a woman oh my god everything every single thing she says just just was really alarming to me so i mean we should be explicit about the fact that we're somewhat considering this at um reading this as a trans narrative right okay so so this isn't a reading of alana as being a trans person right she's she's very clear about the fact that she's doing this as a way to achieve her goals and not because she actually wants to right you know be a man right i think there is there is space within the text for interpretation of that um but that's not what i'm doing um i just i feel that the way that uh Mistress Cooper reacts to her as this, like, tiny child who's coming in super traumatized (laughs) about, like, uh, you know, puberty and, like, just completely freaking out and, like, you know, like, what is my body doing? I want to make it stop. I need to make it stop. I'm going to use my magic to make it stop. And the things that she says are, like, like, you're female no matter what clothing you wear. You cannot change what the gods have given you. And it's just, like so right i mean there's there's so many things that various characters say in this that i guess like alana is a girl so they're you know whatever but you know if the if she were a trans character it would just be the worst and it is it's still words somebody's saying they still exist in this world as apparently the prevalent belief yeah and as well like i don't want to i don't want to take this away from anybody who did read alana as trans like i I definitely really kept that in my mind while I was reading. And I think that, um, you know, that, that reading is one that could have a lot of legitimacy, just like a lot of other readings could. Um, but but I, I agree that it's just, regardless of how we see Alana or how Alana sees herself, like, it's bad things to say. It's bad. Yeah, it's it's not a good message to have there. And it was like... And, like, within within the context of, like, there's, there's like, a woman who's, like, knows what's up with her situation now and, like, who she can talk to and who isn't part of the palace so she can trust her. And it was just, like, a very, very alarming thing to read. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely upsetting that, the you know, the people that she's close to that sort of know, you know, her secret here are the people who tell her, you know, basically, like, we get why you're doing this, but long-term, it's not okay. You know, you need to be your assigned gender, and you need to recognize that you are your assigned gender, and that's not great. Right, without ever at any point, like, or or with the exception of George, without ever at any point asking whether that's, like, what she wants. Yeah. He does ask, but then later he says, I'm gonna call you Alana, and she says, don't, and he says, no, I'm going to, which is... <laughs> Ah, uh, George. I'm still like in the in the context of this narrative where we're reading her as um, a girl. I really like mm-hmm. 
kind of hurt for her that she gets to have all these dad relationships and nobody is allowing her to engage with her identity like in this context as a woman i mean that's that's part of the reason that i appreciate mistress cooper being there is that it's the one time where she can be a woman talking to another woman after leaving her home a big reason why this is like kind of hard to engage with in the book is because like there there is value in giving her this sense of like you're part of this cohort of women now and um or you have been and Mm -hmm. having her get that idea and be able to talk without shame about her period and things like that but uh you don't need gender essential essentialism to do that um yeah right now i wish it didn't come with all of this very assigned biological gender i know that i talk about this as like a book that i think girls should read and uh, a book that i think mm-hmm. everyone should read and uh being a really big part of like my childhood like shaping my consciousness and when i talk about this as like a book that i think people should read and when we have classics like it's hard we have to always be engaging with like this is of a time right yeah we i mean we need to acknowledge that but right it does make it tricky you know because sort of the target audience for this book is probably you know 10 year olds middle schoolers and it's a tricky question of do you give them these things that are good but very much of their period so with some things that we would not want kids to internalize at this point and knowing too that like despite its problems with this like it is like i'm sure for a lot of people in our generation it was like a this is a book that could help them figure out things like gender identity and seeing people perform gender in different ways could be really helpful and transformational so i think that that's good too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I do have um, one other thing to sort of talk about with respect to gender, which is just um, what this book implies are acceptable careers for women in this (laughs) world. Mm. Um, Like, we know that they can't be knights, but they can be warriors who work for the goddess. So that so them being warriors in Tortal is somewhat on the table, which is interesting. I mean, but in that context, they're kind of like nuns with battle axes yeah yeah and right it's also suggested that they can't leave the temple so it's very (laughs) sort of conditional and it's not the violence that's bad because you can have violent nuns it's the like traveling it's the independence that they're not into (laughs) right 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 that's true they don't have the power that knights would have um so but you you can have um female healers we never see any we so we see women who use magic but i think exclusively as healers and then we'll have to see how this changes as the series goes on. We have these, you know, powerful academic sorcerers who are male. Which, I mean, that's a very sort of common breakdown of how magic use works in the world. And how, like, power use works in all worlds. Yeah. No, so it's interesting that um, at the beginning they mention, um, you know, Tom is jealous of Alana because she's going to the convents and at the convents they teach all the girls magic. But then later in his letter, Alana or Tom mentions um, that you know he's he's moved in with the priests um, who are teaching him magic, and he doesn't have to put up with all the giggling girls. <laughs> so that implies that I mean, a bad job, Tom. You're writing <laughs> to your sister. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but b that does imply that women are not learning higher level magic. So that's interesting. 
Now, it mm-hmm. seems like women can do, like, domestic, they can do and learn domestic magic. Right. And I guess healing as a subset of that. Yeah, and they can do, you know, pregnancy charms and stuff, which is very tied into sort of the idea of witches historically being midwives and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think this is um, a way that it that this is really of its time as well, is because second wave feminism was a lot about breaking out of the domestic realm. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. a story about a girl who doesn't want to be in the domestic sphere and would rather, you know, join the ranks of the nobility military. I don't know what knights are. Yeah. Yeah, I also, one of my big questions was like, what do knights do? They go around and they save people. I mean, they're, right, they're, they're, they lead armies, I think, when there are armies to mm-hmm. lead. Otherwise, they just fight and protect their lands and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, she, Alana is breaking the glass ceiling here, basically. That's always hard, a hard trope for me to relate to um, in these, you know, very, uh, these kind of break the glass ceiling stories. Because I'm always like, I think embroidery sounds chill. I would hang out. I don't really want to, like, run or carry or hit. <laughs> I mean, there's not a too much of, of this in here, but there is a little bit of sort of not like the other girls, kind of. I mean, it's mostly she doesn't accept, you know, gender roles of her society, but there is some level of, you know, oh, embroidery, that's just the worst. I like fighting. I'm cool. And <laughs> I think the, these books move away from that a little bit, but it is tricky when... Alana's our main female re- representation in this book, and that's what I was gonna say. It's not not like the other girls because there aren't any other girls, right. Right, which is part of the problem. Right. Yeah. So that's a bit unfortunate. And then the one other thing I wanted to mention uh, with respect to female o- occupations is that um, you're going to meet, you know, the king of the rogues and all the thieves and everything. And it specifically mentions. The the bar is filled with the thieves and their ladies, implying that the ladies are not thieves. <laughs> and it's possessive. Yay! Oh, oh. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Um, they do mention that there's a there's a you know the the third and I believe final female character in this book that we have not mentioned is um, Rispa, who shows up for a scene. And she's the queen of the ladies that follow the rogue. So it's not really unclear, clear what that position entails or who those ladies are. but Or what they do. Or... <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least there are other women there. They're probably cool. But it, it is sort of implied that all the thieves that George is leading are male. There's one other trope I want to touch on. Mm-hmm. And this is going, going back to, like, like trans stuff. Is um, at the very end... Uh, when they're in the Black City, um, you know, fighting against demons and stuff, and the uh, one of the one of the demons is like, "Oh, you're actually a girl," and is like, "Kind of vanish your clothes now." Yeah, like uh, bad, very bad, just bad like, time, real bad. Ooh. Yeah, and as they they also mention much earlier in the book that like Alana's very very scared that she's gonna be forced to mm-hmm. strip her clothes off and. Um, you know, have her secret revealed, and that is such a, you know, I mean, it, not a trans trope in this case, but a very horrifying trans trope used elsewhere. It is. And it's just the sort of thing where when when that gets written even with cis characters, you know, it normalizes that kind of reveal and that kind of yeah. um, entitlement to other people's bodies and that kind of, like, reading of other people's bodies where, like, oh, like, now that I've seen what you look like without your clothes on, I know what you really are. Yeah. Right, that that would 100% make you be like, ah, oh, I know your gender. Like, figured it out now that you're naked. Yeah, right. I can see your genitals, now I know everything. Yeah. 
So that was, I forgot that that happened this book. Um, I was also a bit shocked. I was like, yeah, it's just not good. It was one of those moments that I, I don't think I noticed as much as yeah. a kid. But looking back, that's one of the reasons why I'm, like, surprised. I mean, I know it's a book for young children, but this is a moment when I'm like, but is it really? Yeah, no, I mean, Alana experiences a lot of sort of gender-related trauma as, you know, a young kid, and that's Mm -hmm. pretty upsetting. Yeah, so I I guess I have one other thing to say that's related to um, queerness, if not trans stuff specifically, which is... You know, that Roger is introduced in this book, and his main characteristics are that he's super handsome, and Alana loves his fashion, and he has a jeweled wizard's rod. <laughs> oh, no, and his voice. She says he has, like, a very beautiful, like, slightly high yeah. voice. Right. right. He's he's very sort of coded effeminate with his, like, you know, beautiful velvet outfits and... That cool effeminate villain coding. Yeah. Yeah. So we will see where that goes in the future. <laughs> Yeah. Not good places. It <laughs> sound great, though. I mean, I do like that Alana is, like, very into his fashion. She's like, oh, I hate him as a person, but I love his fashion sense. Yeah, she's like, he has the worst vibes of anyone, but, like, his, his look? Into it. <laughs> okay, but seriously, does anyone else ever in this universe have a rod? Or is that just a Roger thing? <laughs> He's the only one with a rod. I mean, okay, so, like, obviously a a wand or a staff would have also had, you know, similar implications, but I feel like Rod is really just, like, the furthest you can go down the path. Like, he's just sitting there toying with his rod. (laughs) Uh, Hey, this is Gus, and um, Abby's also here. Hi. And, uh, yeah, we're coming to you from the future relative to the rest of what you just heard, but not relative to you. Um, because this episode ran really long. We rec- we had a lot to say. We recorded for a very long time. And we didn't want to dump all of that on you at once. Yeah. The second part of this, um, we'll, we'll um, release that in a, sec- in a separate episode. Probably, like, a couple weeks from now, you'll hear part two of this discussion, which will have... Uh, the second half of Social Justice Corner, it will have Zombie Author, uh, where we revive the dead author, which we've sort of, uh, <laughs> the, the author has been somewhat dead, not entirely dead. We strive to have a dead author. We believe in a dead author, but we sure do like talking about the author. <laughs> we sure do. And also, in a couple weeks, you get to hear us talk about uh, friendship moments and animal friendship moments. There will be a lot of good stuff, so watch out for that. But in the meantime, uh, we'd like to thank our music, which is a version of Greensleeves by Zeta, who you can find on SoundCloud, and tell you where to find us. Uh, yeah, if you have any uh, comments or suggestions, um, you can find us on Twitter at Tortal Recall. Um, you can find us on Tumblr at TortalRecall.tumblr.com, um, or you can email us at TortelRecall at gmail.com. We're also on iTunes, so you can uh, rate and review us there. Until next time, folks. Do we say the sign-off? I, I don't know if I want... We do not say the sign-off. Okay, the sign-off is a special thing that we're saving. <laughs> next time, you'll also get to hear the sign-off. Very exciting. Very exciting.